Hey everyone, welcome to the Geektastic Dad podcast. My name is Jason. I am your friendly neighborhood geek and father of a daughter. I'd like to welcome everyone to 2022. Uh, this is the first episode of the new year, so sorry for the delay. It will be dedicated to Chapter 9 of the Player's Handbook, which is focused entirely on combat. It's going to be super fun. I love going through this stuff because I love combat in d d It's one of my favorite parts. Uh, you're welcome to visit me on social media or send me an email by going to geektastic.link contact. You can support this wonderful bad habit of mine by going to geektastic.link support. If you'd like to leave a virtual voicemail for me and possibly have it played on the podcast, with your permission, of course, you can visit me at geektastic.link voicemail. All of these links can conveniently be found in the show notes. Please like and subscribe my podcast on your favorite app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, doesn't matter. I'm not picky. Thank you for joining me. Now let's get started. Again, I would like to welcome everyone back, and to kick things off, it's time for... What the geek? I'm telling you, that never gets old for me. So I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, and I loved The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's a Will Smith classic for sure. Um, as of the taping of this podcast, I haven't seen the first episode of Bel-Air, which is set to premiere actually today, February 12th. However, after seeing its trailer, it's clear that this is intended to be a drama, not the free-spirited comedy from the 90s that we've come to know and love, uh, which has me a little bit worried. However, a recent article from Geek News Network, uh, the author having some similar doubts, seemed to think very highly of the new series, um, and it does have Will Smith involved in the production, so that seems like a positive. Uh, check out the article in the show notes and watch the trailer if you haven't already. I will definitely be watching it, keeping an eye on it. Uh, maybe I can do a follow-up at some point in a later What the Geek segment to let you know what my take is on it after I get it through a few episodes. So hopefully it's good. Moving on to another 90s reference. Maybe you were a fan of the original Jurassic Park. Uh, you probably know that subsequent movies have been either hit or miss. Some that are entertaining, but don't really capture the same amazing experience of the first film. Now, I watched the trailer for Jurassic World Domination, and it looks pretty great, as others have in the past, but I see a lot of the original cast in it, which for me is kind of a plus. It will be in theaters on June 10th, so I will definitely be going to see it. I think at this point I'm committed to the Jurassic Park franchise, and uh, I just hope that this one will be great, and uh, I'm not disappointed. So this next bit of news is unfortunately bad news. SSD prices are expected to spike, for those of you who like to build computers or work in the electronics or computer industry, due to a plant in Japan experiencing contamination of materials used in the manufacturing process. Western Digital is reporting it has lost about 6.5 billion gigabytes of flash storage, which will create a big impact to supply resulting in prices going up for all manufacturers. As the article in the show notes point out, this can have an overarching impact to other manufacturers who leverage SSDs, uh, for example, the Sony PlayStation. Some of you may or may not know, I work in technology, and we're already experiencing significant impacts to supply chain and even prices due to a number of problems. So I suspect this is just going to make things worse before it gets better. So that's it for What the Geek. On to your regularly scheduled program. When dealing with combat in D&D, there's usually a lot going on. You have to consider the position and action of your allies and enemies. You have to consider movement, distance, effects, and so on. 
the more you spend time in combat, the more you'll get used to it, but it all starts with the order of the combat. In my last episode, we talked about the passage of time, and specifically how each round in a combat is equal to six seconds. However, there's a lot packed into that six seconds. D&D is basically a turn-based system when it comes to combat, so naturally you need to know who does what in what order, right? So let's start by breaking this down a little bit. We've established that each round is a six-second moment in time in the game. Each participant has a turn, so within one round, or within the round, when it's your turn, you get to take a movement, you get to take an action, and so on. When the last creature, either friend or foe, in the initiative order takes its turn, the round ends and the next round begins. Essentially, during a round, you're basically waiting for your turn, and your turn is determined by, you ready? A roll of the dice, of course. We call this initiative. So. When you hear your DM say, everyone roll initiative, you're probably about to go into combat. Now, in previous versions of D&D, they had a surprise round. But in 5th edition, they kind of did away with that in lieu of a surprise condition. Any creature that is surprised can't move or take an action, and can't take a reaction until the turn ends. To determine whether a character is surprised, it's by usually an opposed ability roll of Dexterity Stealth, versus passive perception wisdom on the opposing side. And any character that fails the passive perception is considered surprised. The DM may choose to determine position in tandem or just before determining surprise. The DM will generally determine where the monsters are while the players generally determine their stated location or marching order, sometimes they call it. During your turn, you have several options including movement, action or actions, bonus action, and so on. We'll talk about movement and actions in just a little bit, but bonus actions are basically special features, spells, or any other ability that your character can take based off the class. For example, a rogue may use the bonus action to disengage, which is a full action for any other class. You will only get one bonus action on your turn, and you can only use it during your turn. With few exceptions, you get to determine when you take your bonus action. So it can happen before or after movement, uh, before or after your action or actions, but it does have to happen on your turn. Now there are other things you can do during your turn that do not require an action or a bonus action, like interacting with objects during your movement or action, opening a door as you move towards something, or drawing a weapon. Uh, there's a larger list of examples of interacting with objects in the player's handbook in Chapter 9. You can also make brief utterances or gestures for example, pointing and yelling, look out! So that's, that's allowed, as, doesn't really classify as an action, bonus action, or reaction. Finally, sometimes you can use a reaction, which is triggered by some other kind of situation. Reactions are generally spells or abilities that react to someone else. If a creature moves out of your range, you can use a reaction to make an opportunity attack. If you're a wizard, you might use a reaction to cast shield to increase your AC by plus 5 to avoid getting hit by an attack. So that's pretty much it for the order of combat and kind of gives us a baseline for the rest of this episode. Okay, so we're going to talk about movement and position. So while you're in combat, you can move up to your speed in most situations, and you can choose to use as much or as little of that movement speed as you'd like at any point during your turn. If your movement is 30 feet, then let's say you move 10 feet and make a ranged attack, and then you can move another 20 feet in any other direction. Now some characters do have multiple types of movement, an example would be flying. And you can choose to switch between these as well, as long as the situation permits. 
You just have to subtract the movement you've already used from the distance of the movement you're about to use. So if your character has a speed of 30 feet and a flying speed of 60 feet, you move 20 feet and then start to fly, you will still have 40 feet of flight left. Now, sometimes things impede your character's ability to move. Difficult terrain is one such example. So if your DM says you're in difficult terrain, you're basically down to half your movement because each one foot you move costs you double or two feet of movement. So moving 10 feet costs you 20 feet of movement. Being prone also impedes your ability to move. So being knocked prone basically means you got knocked down. If your character is prone, you have to use half your movement to stand up before you can go anywhere. Uh, so if you have a 30-foot base speed, it'll cost you 15 feet to stand up. Now you can move around other creatures for the most part. Uh, if the creatures are not hostile, you can move through their space without any problem. However, for hostile creatures, you can move through their space so long as they're no more than two sizes bigger or two sizes smaller than your character. But doing so makes it equivalent to difficult terrain. So if you're going to move through a group of bad guys, it costs you half your speed. Uh, moving outside the range of hostile creatures will provoke an opportunity as well, so be careful about that. So if you move through them and then leave the range of any one of those creatures, they'll get an opportunity attack, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, we keep talking about actions. So actions in combat. During, during your turn, your character will have one or more action that they can take. Uh, these actions can be a number of forms, can take a number of forms, including attack, casting a spell, dash, disengage, dodge, help, hide, steady search, and using an object. Whew, that's a long list. Uh, keep in mind as I go through this information that it's basically the most common scenarios, but there are always exceptions. For example, once a rogue reaches second level, he or she can dash, disengage, or hide as a bonus action. So I'm not going to go into all those little exceptions because they're all over the place, but just be aware that there are exceptions to this. The most likely action for most characters during combat is the attack action, including either a ranged attack or a melee attack. However, some classes, like wizards and sorcerers, will use their action to cast a spell. As you're looking through your spellcaster's spells, look for the 1A or 1 action spells, and those can be used during combat situations. And we'll talk about more of the rules of spellcasting in Chapter 10. Uh, we'll also talk about the mechanics of making an attack uh, in a little bit. So there are actions that aren't intended to cause damage. The first of these is disengage, which allows you to leave the range of a hostile character without provoking an opportunity attack. If you use the dodge action, you're basically focusing your energy on avoiding attacks, so all attacks against you are rolled at disadvantage, and any dexterity saving throws are at advantage, but you, you've used your action at that point. Help is another action you can take, which is lending aid to another creature or character in the completion of some task, which gives that character advantage on his or her next ability check, so long as they make their check before the start of your next turn. You can also use your action to hide. Uh, when you choose to hide, you make a dexterity stealth check, and if you succeed, you gain special benefits, and we'll talk about unseen attackers and targets a little bit later. You could choose to use the ready action, which allows you to basically get the jump on a hostile creature, or if you prefer to wait before you take an action. Taking the ready action allows you to use your reaction before the start of your next turn, so this does require a bit of planning. First, you have to decide what perceivable circumstance will trigger your reaction. Notice it says perceivable. A lot of times you have to be able to see what's going on. 
Second, you choose the action you will take in response to that trigger, or you can choose to move up to your speed. You can also choose to ready a spell, which means you cast the spell but withhold the energy, which will release with the trigger. Holding the spell does require concentration. Again, we'll explain more of this in Chapter 10 when we talk about spells. Uh, but know that if you lose your concentration, the spell dissipates and you lose it. This also means that if you're already concentrating on a spell, you will lose that uh, in lieu of concentrating on your ready action. You could use your action to search, which means you devote your attention for that six seconds to finding something. This will most likely require a wisdom perception check or an intelligence investigation check, depending on your DM and what you're trying to do and find. Finally, you can choose to use or interact with an object or multiple objects as your action. Examples of this are noted in the player's handbook, uh, include breaking down a door, intimidating enemies, sensing weakness and magical defenses, uh, calling on your party, or for calling on a parlay with a foe. Now notice I talked about the door. If you're just opening the door and moving through it, it becomes part of your action. But if you have to stop and break it down the door, that is your action. You can't do that and then take another action unless your character can take two actions in a turn. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay, I promised to discuss more about the mechanics of making an, act, making an attack. When your character chooses to strike an opponent with a melee weapon, fire a range weapon, or even casting some spells, you have to follow a simple checklist. First, choose a target, or in some cases, targets, depending on the effect. The target must be within your attack's range, whether it's melee or ranged. Uh, in melee, they call it reach. But note that most ranged attacks have two ranges, like a short bow has a range of 80 slash 320. The first number indicates the optimal range, so your normal attack can go up to whatever feet. You can make an attack within this range normally. Um, the second number, in this case was 320, means that you can technically reach a target with this range, but anything beyond the initial range, which is 80 in this example, is at disadvantage. So second step is determine attack modifiers. Now the DM will help to determine some of the modifiers, including cover uh, or advantage versus disadvantage. Other effects can influence your attack, but if you're not sure, talk to your DM, and of course always consult source materials if you have any questions. If you're using D&D Beyond, much of this is calculated for you, but not all of it. So be sure you know your character's modifiers front and back. The final step is to resolve the attack, basically. You make the attack roll, and if you hit, you roll your damage, and then apply any special effects as noted by the weapon or spells or whatever. The attack roll itself consists of multiple components, including modifiers, proficiency bonus, and dice roll. Uh, when, you're attack when you attack a creature, you have to add all of this stuff together including modifiers like strength for melee or dexterity for range, any proficiency bonuses you have for proficiency weapons, uh, special abilities, I mean, the list goes on. This can seem a bit overwhelming, but again, tools like D&D Beyond will help you figure this out. Sometimes attackers can't be seen due to, like, an invisibility spell, or maybe they're just really good at hiding. If a character cannot be seen, then attacks against this creature at at disadvantage. Now the player's handbook is clear to point out that this includes situations where you're just guessing the location or maybe you can hear them but you can't see them. Also when a creature is unseen that creature now has advantage on attack rolls against other characters or creatures. But of course as soon as you attack you give away your location uh, you're no longer hiding. 
Um, an invisibility spell, usually you lose the invisibility once you take that action. We already talked about range attacks and how the game mechanics work uh, when there are two ranges. However, I forgot to mention that when you make a range attack in close combat, which is within five feet of a creature you're attacking, you have disadvantage unless that creature is incapacitated. Melee attacks also have a range, they call it reach for melee, which is usually five feet, but some weapons have a longer reach than others. If a creature is within your melee weapon's reach and leaves that area, you get an opportunity attack. We've talked about this a little bit. To avoid an opportunity attack, you can use the disengage action, which is a full action, uh, but uh, we talked about this as well. Some classes get this as a bonus. Two-weapon fighting basically gives you an extra attack on your turn. Uh, and here's basically how that works. If your character is attacking with a light melee weapon that is being held in one hand, the character can use its bonus action to make another attack with another hand using another or different light weapon. You do not add your ability modifier to the damage of this bonus attack unless that modifier is negative. If either your of your light weapons has the thrown property, meaning you like a dagger, you can stab with it or you can throw it, uh, you can throw that as your bonus action. Some attacks do invoke uh, contested rolls. Uh, for example, if you want to grapple a creature, meaning you grab them or wrestle them, you can use your character's action, attack action, to make a special melee attack, uh, basically a grapple. To grapple a creature, it cannot be more than one size larger than you. So if you're a medium-sized creature, you can try to grapple a large creature, but not a gargantuan creature. When you decide to grapple, you're going to replace your normal attack roll with a strength athletics check, which will be contested by the other creature using either strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics. Of course, if the creature is incapacitated, you win by default. You can just, if they're incapacitated, you can just grab them. <laughs> There's no contest there. If you win the contest, the other creature is now considered grappled, uh, which is a condition that means his or her speed becomes zero. The person who is grappling can move the grappled creature, but the speed is now half. So if you're holding on and grappling a creature, you can drag it somewhere with you, but your speed is now half because you're taking, you know, you're doing double the work. If a creature is grappled, it can use its action to try to escape the grapple, which means you basically do another contested roll just like before. So that's a lot to hit can. Hopefully that makes sense. Another contested roll is shoving a creature, uh, either pushing it away or knocking it prone. And again, the target cannot be more than one size larger, uh, and you make the same strength athletics check contested by the target creature's strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics check. Whew, that's a lot. So cover in combat is pretty simple. If you are behind a wall, tree, or other creature, or some obstacle during combat, it makes it hard to target you. Uh, cover can come in the form of three flavors, half cover, three quarters cover, and total cover. Each of these has its own benefit as follows. So half cover grants the creature a plus two bonus to AC and dexterity saving throws. Three quarter cover grants the creature a plus five bonus to AC and dexterity saving throws. In total cover, the creature cannot be targeted with total cover. Not at all. So the DM usually determines what kind of cover a creature has, but it's pretty self-explanatory. Okay, moving on to damage and healing. So we've discussed hit points before, uh, as well as how damage works. You basically roll your damage and apply any modifiers, which includes pluses as well as minuses. Now, with enough penalties, you can end up dealing zero damage, but you can never damage negatively. You can't have negative damage. 
Some damage is due to an area effect, like a fireball, uh, wizard's favorite. Uh, area damage is rolled once and applied to all creatures that are affected by the damage. If you roll a natural 20 on your attack, you get a critical hit. When you score a critical hit, you can roll extra dice for the attack. You can double your damage dice, uh, or you can just roll the damage and double the number. It's, I mean, it's I don't really care when my characters do it, um, whichever way they prefer. There are also 13 types of damage. So I'm going to go through these really quick. There's acid, bludgeoning, cold, fire, force, lightning, necrotic, piercing, poison, psychic, radiant, slashing, and thunder. Whew. You can read about each one of these in the player's handbook. I'm not going to go through every, every single one of them. But know that some creatures are either resistant or immune, or even vulnerable to damage types. So resistance means the damage is halved. Immune means they take no damage from that damage type. Vulnerable means they double the damage. So if they're vulnerable to fire, they take double the fire damage whenever they get hit by it. So for healing, healing can happen so long as a creature is not dead. And we'll talk about dropping to zero hit points in just a second. A long or short rest can restore hit points, but spells such as cure wounds... Uh, or healing potions can also remove damage and restore hit points. When healing occurs, the hit points are added back into its current hit points. Uh, but hit points cannot exceed the maximum. So if your maximum is 100 hit points, you can never have 120 uh, as your hit points, just because you get a bunch of healing. A dead creature cannot be healed without being brought back to life with something like Revivify. Alright, so I mentioned dropping to zero hit points. Some characters end up getting drop to zero hit points or below, uh, and there are specific rules for that character, mostly player characters, when this happens. If your character takes a massive amount of damage, it can result in an instant death. So when any damage reduces your character's hit points to zero, and there's damage left over after your character hits zero, if that remaining damage exceeds your character's maximum, then your character instantly dies. So let's say my sorcerer has five hit points left. He has a total of 15. Uh, when at maximum health. If the attack does 25 points of damage, I first subtract the 5 hit points left, so that leaves 20 hit points of damage remaining, uh, which exceeds the 15 hit point maximum that my character has by about 5 hit points. That means that this attack will instantly kill my sorcerer. Rest in peace. On the other side of the spectrum, if an attack takes the character to 0 hit points, then the character falls unconscious. If the character gains hit points back, it regains consciousness again. Here's the rub, though. When your character starts its turn with zero hit points, then the character is now dying and must make death saving throw. At this point, you're going to eventually either get a total of three failures or three successes, uh, if left untreated. Three failures means your character is now dead, whereas three successes means that your character is stabilized. To roll a death saving throw, you just roll 1d20. If the roll is 10 or higher, it's a success. If it's below 10, it's a failure. Success and failures do not have to be consecutive, just three total either direction. Now, if your character regains hit points or becomes stable, the death saving throws reset. If you happen to roll a natural 1 on a death saving throw, it counts as two failures. A natural 20, on the other hand, for a death saving throw means that you regain one hit point. So if that one hit point brings you above zero, then you're golden. <laughs> if your character happens to be at zero hit points and takes damage, the character suffers an automatic death saving throw. Failure. 
And if that happens to be a critical hit, then it's two failures. Uh, if that damage meets or exceeds your maximum hit points, then your character dies instantly again. So your character can be stabilized, though. Uh, the best way to stabilize a character is to heal it, either with spells or potions or something similar. Another character can administer first aid to an unconscious creature to stabilize it with a wisdom medicine check at a DC 10. Stable creatures do not have to make any more death saving throws, but they are still unconscious. And after 1d4 hours, a stable creature will regain one hit point. Now there are exceptions to all of this because it's way too much work for a DM to roll death saving throws for every monster every time they drop below zero hit points. So for the sake of simplicity, when monsters hit zero hit points, they're just dead. Uh, some NPCs, though, some special NPCs, may be an exception. Uh, but ultimately, that's up to your DM how he or she wants to handle it. Now, there may be a situation where your character prefers to simply knock out a creature uh, instead of killing it. When the attack uh, is made, when the attacker manages to, to drop a creature to zero hit points, the attacker can choose at this point whether the damage is dealt basically to make it non-lethal, or whether it's intended to kill it. At which point, if it's non-lethal, then the target becomes unconscious, uh, but stable. There are some abilities and spells that grant temporary hit points to creatures. Now, these hit points aren't really hit points per se, but rather a pool of points that act as sort of a buffer against damage. So when your character or another creature has temporary hit points, any damage is taken out of that pool first, before coming out of your character's actual hit points. Healing can restore regular hit points, but cannot restore temporary hit points. And if your character's at zero hit points, and temporary hit points won't do your character any good. I've mentioned before that there are some characters that will have mounts. Well, in combat, these mounts have a few unique rules uh, that are relevant during combat. Once during your move, you can either mount a creature within five feet of you, or dismount a creature you're already riding. Doing this costs your creature half its speed. It's kind of like being knocked prone. So if you, if you have a speed of 30 feet and you dismount, once you're on the ground, you can move another 15 feet. Similarly, if you have a movement speed of 30 and you want to mount a creature within 5 feet of you, you need at least 15 feet of movement remaining during your turn to do so. If you're riding a creature and some force moves your mount against its will, you have to succeed in a DC 10 dexterity saving throw or you basically fall off and end up prone uh, within five feet of your mount. Same, same rule applies if you're knocked prone while on the mount. If your mount is knocked prone, however, you can use your reaction to dismount as, if it, as it falls and land on your feet. Otherwise, your character is basically dismounted and also knocked prone within five feet of your mount. So if your mount gets knocked prone, jump off. While you're on a mounted creature, you can choose to either control the mount or allow it to act independently if it's an intelligent creature, like a dragon. Mounts can be controlled if they have been trained to accept a rider, so you can't just grab some random wild horse or griffin and expect that mount to be able to mount it and ride it. Your mount's initiative changes to match your initiative during combat while you're mounted if you are controlling it. And the mount moves as directed and only really has three options, to dash, disengage, and dodge. Now, your character's mount can act on the same turn that you mounted as well, so keep that in mind. Independent mounts, however, have their own initiative, and there are no restrictions on the actions that they can take during its turn. Uh, it can basically act and move as it sees fit, and that may be something the DM decides. However, whether controlled 
or acting independently, mounts still provoke an opportunity attack while you're on it. The attacker can choose to target either your character or the mount at that point. Alright, so last but not least, we'll talk about underwater combat. If a creature does not specifically have a swimming speed, which can be either naturally or granted by a spell, then all attacks are at disadvantage with the exception of daggers, javelins, swords, spears, or tridents. All melee attacks. Uh, I'm not sure what the rationale is behind, behind those weapons, but it is what it is. Ranged attacks automatically miss if the target is beyond its normal range. So if it's, when, it's, if it's outside of that first number, but within the second number, it still fails when it's underwater. Uh, even within normal range, a ranged attack has disadvantage, with the exception of crossbow, net, or any thrown weapon like a javelin, spear, trident, or dart. Again, I'm not sure what the rationale is, because I'm pretty sure darts don't do much underwater in real life, but it might be fun to test someday, I don't know. So finally, any creature can fully, uh, that is fully immersed in water does have resistance to fire damage, so that's a benefit, I guess. All right, so that's it for today. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting me. Again, just uh, point your favorite browser to geektastic.link slash support. Uh, thank you for joining me. Be sure to like and subscribe to my podcast. Share it with your friends. Spread the word. Uh, if you'd like to visit me on social media or send me an email, again, you can open your browser to geektastic.link slash contact. Uh, like and subscribe to my podcast with your favorite app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever. Uh, again, I'm not picky. Uh, go to geektastic.link slash podcast to see a list of all, all of them. If you would like to leave me a voice message and possibly have it played with your permission, uh, visit geektastic.link slash voicemail. Be kind to each other, have fun, and always, always stay geek Thank you, guys.